You're listening to Time in the Word. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Galatians 3.8 The Old Testament had the foresight to predict the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. The scriptures not only predicted that He would come, but also prophesied the precise way that He would save. He would justify sinners by faith, exactly as God justified Abraham. This plan of salvation is for all people everywhere. It is universal. It is for all nations. The blessing of justification was never for the Jews alone. It was always intended for the whole world. In Galatians 3.8, Paul refers to the Gentiles and to the nations. In fact, these are two different translations for the same term. The word does not refer to political states, but to people groups. Through Abraham, God's blessing would come to every ethnic community in the world, to every tribe, people, and language. This was the agenda that Jesus established for the church, to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28:19. It later became Paul's agenda for world missions. This explains why he went to places like Galatia to proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ that God had first announced to Abraham. Preaching the gospel to every people group remains the church's agenda to this very day. To think and to act biblically is to think and to act globally. We preach the whole gospel to the whole world, knowing that it is the will of God for Jesus Christ to stake his claim on every ethnic community on the face of the earth. The gospel we preach to the nations is the gospel of justification by faith. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez continues his expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Chapter 3, start in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, now then, that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We uh, made some introductory statements during our earlier meeting and started looking at uh, verse 6, and we uh, spend a little bit of uh, time in, in uh, Genesis and, and discuss some passages in Romans that help make the argument Paul is making here all along. So we'll sort of pick up uh, somewhere around verse 7. The fact that Abraham had been justified as a Gentile made a perfect example to use for the Galatians, who had really been wrestling with two questions. One of the questions was, whom does God accept? And the second question was, on what basis? Very important questions. And certainly, uh, I would encourage us that as we look, you know, sometimes we, we read these passages of scriptures and we even do an exposition on them and we try to plug ourselves into what was going in in Galatians and we lose sight that the scriptures are also written for us and, and ought to be context, properly contextualized to, to where we are today. We are all ministers of reconciliation we're all witnesses of Christ. We're all ambassadors of the kingdom. What is that song? What is that message we proclaim every single day? Is it this message? Or does it somehow deviate in any way, shape, or form? And when we have discussions with individuals whose 
gospel is different from this one, do we lovingly correct them? Not for the sake of argument, but for their own sake. So this is important because it applies as much to us today as it did to the Galatians when, when this epistle was, was written. So for his answer to, to these questions, Paul took Abraham's history and applied it to their situation, and he applies it to ours. Look at verse 7. Now then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. I can't help but believe that such a statement must have utterly enraged the Judaizers when they heard it. Their claim was that they were the children of Abraham, right? While others were not. They would argue, we have been circumcised. So we are the sons of Abraham. So Paul, as, as he often did, picks up on their language and uses it to essentially smack them down with it, exposing the fallacy with their own language of what they're saying. And he, in essence, is declaring that the only real children of Abraham are those who believe. Paul not only taught this, but he absolutely and utterly insisted on this. Grammatically, verse 7 reads the, this way. The ones of faith, these are the sons of Abraham. All who believe, and only those who believe, are the children of Abraham. Paul argues that membership in Abraham's family is not hereditary. Father Abraham's true children, sons and daughters, are not the people who keep the law, but the people who live by faith. This flies in the face of everything that Judaizers were teaching and attempting to convince the Galatians of. Their family resemblance is spiritual rather than physical. So practically speaking, this means that God will accept. Now this is important because again, every single day we are proclaiming the gospel to others. So what is the story we're telling? Well, that is it that God will accept us only on the same basis in which he accepted Abraham? Because that's what he's saying is the gospel. Like father, like son. If Abraham was justified by faith, then his children are justified by faith too. Therefore, we will never become children of God by what we do. We will become children of God by what we believe. Which begs the question, what then must we believe? Because all religious people believe something. And all religious people, as far as we often can tell, are sincere about their beliefs. They have convictions. So we can't stop at simply saying, you must believe. We must be equally clear about what it is we're saying they must believe in. Because faith, improperly placed, believing in the wrong thing, won't save. Yet you must believe and have faith. So the, the, the question that begs to be asked is, what must we believe? Now notice that the object of Abraham's faith was God. He put his trust in God. The very first part of, of chapter 3, verse 6, Abraham believed God. What is the object of your faith? Who are you believing in? Who are you trusting in? Here's the key. Abraham believed what or in whom? God. And that or this was credited to him as righteousness. What Abraham believed was not simply the promises of God, though he believed the promises of God, 
but he believed God himself. He did not simply believe in what God said. He believed in the one who said what was said. And you have to think about that because there is a difference. Oftentimes, and I suppose this is true of all of us as Christians, no matter how long we've been Christians, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we will all have to confess that at some point or another, we struggle with truly being utterly convinced that something will actually be so if we're not consistently understanding the nature of the one who said it. I mean, certainly we will pray for things that may not often be answered the way we would like to see them. My challenge is when I'm bothered by that, is it because I doubt it? a promise, or is it because I'm missing something about the character or nature of God, or is it because I, I don't understand the purposes of God? If God is working out all things together for good to those who love Him, if He is sovereign God, if He is omnipotent and omniscient God, if He's God, is there ever a time when I ought to not trust and believe what He says? And that's why faith and belief in, uh, as we see in Abraham here, is this is not easy believism. Think about some of the promises that God had made to Abraham. I'm going to give you all this land. He yet didn't possess any of it. And then he's given another promise. You know, you're going to have descendants beyond what you can count. He was 100 years old and had no children up to that point, which highlights the importance of one actually having faith, and two, always making sure that our faith is placed where it needs to be. Or if not, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for us other than potentially damn us because our faith is placed in something or someone who cannot say. Abraham put his faith in the faithful God, the God who made him the promise. He didn't just believe the promise. He was convinced that the one who made the promise could fully be trusted. In Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 22, the scripture says this, no distrust, must, no distrust made him waver. Why no distrust? Perhaps because he knew who made the promise. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that he was able to do what he promised. And why could he do what he promised? Because he is God. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. If we are to become children of Abraham and therefore children of God, we must have the same faith. And not only that, we must put it in the same place. We must trust the God who keeps every promise he has ever made. We trust him for guidance, believing that he will show us the way we should go. We trust him for providence, believing that he will take care of us, whatever we need. We trust him for deliverance, believing that he will bring us through times of trial and tribulation and hardship. We trust him for everything, just as Abraham did. But most of all, we trust him for our salvation through his son. Now that God, the son, has come into the world to believe God is to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. As one scholar says, receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation as it is offered to us in the gospel. That is it. So to have faith is to believe the good news of the cross and the empty tomb. It is to accept what the Bible says about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It is to trust in 
Jesus Christ is crucified, as he, Paul said in verse 1 of, of this chapter. It is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead to give us eternal life. These are the things that we must believe if we want God to accept us the way he justified Abraham. Romans chapter 4, and I, I'm quoting a lot of Romans because Romans and Galatians, at least Galatians 1, 2, and 3, have very... Uh, similar trains of thought. In Romans 4, 23 through 25, listen to what uh, Paul says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. How does it apply to us? Well, if we're children of Abraham and children of God, if God is our father and Abraham is our father, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How he was justified is just the same way how we are justified. There is no difference. It is by faith that we are declared. It is by faith that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. When we place our faith, when we place our confidence in the God who raised the crucified Christ from the dead, then God credits Christ's righteousness to our account. When God looks upon a saint, what does he see? When we go before God, if there were such a question asked of us, why should I let you into my heaven? What is the answer? Imputation is a critical component of this, of the gospel. Because it's not my righteousness, it's not my works, it's not my circumcision, it's not my anything. It is all Christ. It is all His righteousness. It is the perfect life He lived, the atoning death and the resurrection that reconciled me to Almighty God. Thus, God can be the justifier while remaining all along just. Someone paid. There was an atonement made. There was expiation and propitiation. He didn't overlook my sin. He didn't. It was paid for. So this faith is not just for Abraham and the Galatians, but for us, for everyone. In verse 6, Paul proved that justification by faith was God's plan for Abraham. In verse 7, he showed that the people like the Galatians could become Abraham's children by the same faith. And then in verse 8, he proves that justification by faith has always been God's plan for all people everywhere. Listen to what he says in verse 8, Galatians chapter 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. How did he preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand? It says, that, it, sa it says that's what he did, right? Foreseeing that he would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This quotation takes us even further back in Abraham's story to the very first promise that God made to him. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, And I will make you a great nation. And then it says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And there's also an echo in, in Galatians from Genesis 18, 18, where God said, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. By quoting Genesis in this way, Paul teaches something very important about the Bible. The promises in Genesis come 
from the mouth of God. But for Paul, what the Bible says and what God says are one and the same. That's why we argue for the inspiration, inerrancy of Scripture. Two words in, cha- in, in, in verse 8 that are interesting here. He uses the word Scripture at the beginning of the verse, and then towards the middle of the verse, he uses the word preached. So even though God was the one doing the talking, this is one place where, as one great theologian of old in this country said, God and the scriptures are brought into such conjunction as to show that in point of directness of authority, no distinction was made between them. When the Bible we hold to, we believe, we have a conviction that the Bible is God's word written. And this is why the scripture we argue is alive. It has the power to announce Because God speaks in it with a living and powerful voice. The words on the pages of the Bible come straight from the mouth of God. So because it was written by God, though through human authors, the Bible speaks with one mind, one message. That one message is justification is by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. So in verse 8, he says the scripture, then he moves out into the middle of the verse and says, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What God said to Abram or Abraham, when you read that verse, was nothing less than the proclamation of the gospel. Christians sometimes sing about the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Well, that story is older than some people realize. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve were the first to hear the gospel. It says in that verse, And between you, your offspring, and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Ultimately, the good news of the Old Testament is the good news about Christ. The gospel is about the good news of God forgiving sins and granting eternal life. These are the very things Abraham believed. Listen, he didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ by name, did he? But he trusted him nonetheless. He believed that God would forgive his sins and grant him eternal life. He had faith. In other words, in both the atonement and the resurrection. Abraham believed. Consider, for example, uh, Abraham's actions in Mount Moriah where God told him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. You recall that as they, were, as they hiked up the mountain, it dawned on Isaac that something was missing. In Genesis 22, 7, it says, Behold the fire and the wood, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? We know that Abraham believed that God would provide the atoning sacrifice. So he answers and says, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son. Has God provided? Abraham was right. God indeed provided. He provided a ram that was caught in the thicket, which Abraham ended up offering in place of his son. He had faith in God's gift of an atoning sacrifice. And in fact, Abraham also had faith in the resurrection. Why do I say that? Well, before he went up to the mountain with Isaac, notice what he said. He said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you, both, the two of us will. How God was going to work this out between the time he said that and the time he actually made it back down the mountain with his son, he didn't have perhaps any certainty of how all he knew was that his son would live. That God somehow, even if he had sacrificed his son, he would bring him back to life. 
How could this be? Well, the scripture tells us what Abraham was thinking when you actually go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19. It says there, he considered that God was able to even raise his son from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back, which is an interesting statement in and of itself because it tells us that that the, the offering was made. Though the child never died, he was willing to, by faith, do what God required. So in a sense, in a sense, he did die and come back to life. Abraham believed in God's power over death. He trusted God to forgive sins, and he trusted him to grant eternal life. Thus, the gospel according to Abraham included both the atonement and the resurrection. All Abraham's children believe the same gospel. What we believe today is no different than what Abraham believed. It is no different than what any saint in history has believed. His true sons, argues Paul, are the people of faith. We trust in the atoning death and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus as God planned from the very beginning. I won't spend a whole lot of time on this other than to say, obviously, the doctrine of justification by faith is not a new doctrine is not a novelty, as some may argue. The doctrine of justification by faith alone has always been the way by which God reconciles sinners to himself. Um, There are some evangelical Christians who seem to question the importance of the, the Reformation. Obviously, justification by faith we present as the material cause for the Protestant Reformation. The authority of Scripture is is also uh, an important component of that, but the material cause was the doctrine of justification by faith. And in particular, they wonder if there was really... Uh, if it was really necessary at all to divide the church over this particular doctrine. The argument would go something like this. What does it matter whether I am saved by faith alone or by faith plus works as long as I am justified? Who cares whether God makes me righteous or he declares me righteous as long as I am righteous to the end? Well, I mean, it's a valid point, but we must answer the question because, and depending on how we answer the question, we either got the gospel right or we don't. To those who doubt the necessity of the Reformation doctrine of justification, we testify, as Paul did and as well as Abraham, that justification has always come only by faith. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has always been the very heart of God's plan for the salvation of sinners. Always. And he makes the case from Abraham, going all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis. One uh, New Testament scholar rightly concluded when he said, and I quote, justification remains the center, the beginning, and the end of salvation history. It has never changed. Paul could not have expressed this point more forcefully than he did in the words of uh, the you know, first part of verse 8 where he says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, how? What does it say? How would he justify the Gentiles? That's Paul's writing. That's not Luther's writing. That's not Swingley's writing. That's not Calvin's writing. That's not Tyndale's writing. That's Paul who received his doctrine from the Lord himself and making the point by using Abraham from all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis. There's nothing new about justification by faith. That is the gospel. It always has been the gospel. The Old Testament had the foresight 
to predict the coming of the Lord, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. And the Scriptures not only predicted that He would come, but also prophesied the precise way in which He would save. He would justify sinners by faith as God justified Abraham. That's what Paul is teaching. So there's nothing new about this particular doctrine. So this plan of salvation is for all people everywhere. It is universal. It is for all the nations. The blessing of justification was never for the Jews alone. It was always intended for the whole world. And in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul refers to the Gentiles and to the nations. In fact, the Gentiles and nations here are two different translations essentially for the same term. And it doesn't refer to political states, but to the people groups. So through Abraham, God's blessing would come to the ethnic community in the world, to every tribe, every people in every language. And that is consistent with what the Lord himself said, right? When he said in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. And those who are made disciples from all nations, those who come to faith in Christ, become children of the living God in the same way that their father Abraham did once they have come to faith. Nothing has changed. The gospel has always been the same. And in verse 9, Paul summarizes what he has been saying uh, up to this point. Look at verse 9. He says, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this verse clearly speaks of the common blessing. We are blessed. What does it say? So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. So we are blessed with Abraham so that all his blessings become our blessings. By faith, we become the object of the blessings God promised to Abraham. Thus, he becomes our brother in the faith and our father in the faith. I'll close with this. Um, the blessing Paul has in mind, obviously, is the gospel blessing God announced in Abraham. To be justified or accepted as righteous in the sight of God. Listen to what one evangelical scholar says. He asks, what was it that the scriptures foresaw and preached beforehand to Abraham? Simply this. The good news of salvation was to be extended to all peoples, including the Gentiles, who would be declared righteous by God, just like Abraham on the basis of faith. What are we proclaiming when we go out into the world and witness? My prayer, for myself at least, is not only that God would give me the opportunities to share with others the wonderful good news of the gospel of Christ, but that I may be thoroughly accurate in what I say. Because who and what I believe or who or what somebody believes is absolutely critical. And again, we are always talking about souls here. So let's get the gospel right. Let's make sure that we read through these books in the, in the scriptures that address the, the, the doctrine, that we read through them slowly and study the words and consider what they mean so that we may indeed be sharing a story uh, that is faithful to what the scriptures present to us. 